1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into an account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, Endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Be seated. As we've been going through chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which many have recalled the great love chapter of the Bible, we need to understand, and I've reiterated this in numerous messages in the past, that the Christian life is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not simply a profession to some doctrines about Christ. Now, I need to be careful when I say that. Yes, there are things, there are doctrines that we intellectually need to grasp, and there are certain doctrines that we need to intellectually grasp in order to be a Christian, according to the Scripture, that is. For example, according to 1 John 2, 22 and 23, it says that he must believe, that one must believe that Jesus is the Christ. And whoever doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. And it says, who is the Antichrist, but who denies the Father and the Son? So, at least intellectually, I need to affirm with my mind that Jesus is the Christ. When I affirm that Jesus is the Christ, what I am saying is this. The Christ is the Greek form of the Old Testament Messiah. And when I say that Jesus is the Messiah, I am saying that... This person is not only God, but he's also man simultaneously. The Messiah was, now the Christ, is the God-man. And any form that denies the true humanity of Jesus is a doctrine of the Antichrist. Any doctrine that denies the deity of Jesus 
is the doctrine of the Antichrist. You and I, if we are anointed by the Holy Spirit, and 1 John says we're anointed by the Holy Spirit, we understand that. We, nobody has to teach you that. You know that by the fact the Spirit tells you that. So a Christian doesn't at least intellectually know that. You've got to know that from your heart. What else do you have to believe in order to be a Christian? Well, you've got to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Romans 10.13 talks about uh, <clears throat> that we have to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart. Believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. So any belief that denies the physical resurrection of Jesus, say, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm sorry, but that's not true. A genuine Christian knows that. Now, who's taught you that? The latest findings of science? No. The Holy Spirit has taught you that. you got to believe that. You have to believe in justification by faith. Alone in Jesus. And Paul says anybody who doesn't believe that is accursed in Galatians 1.8. But you see, in all those doctrines that I've just mentioned to you, and they're precious doctrines, you've got to believe in the Trinity. It talks about the Antichrist is the one who doesn't believe in the Father, doesn't affirm the Father and the Son. You know what that means? Anybody who's a Mormon is not a Christian. Because they don't believe in the Father and the Son. They don't have a, a, a true view of who Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. Any group that denies the Trinity is the spirit of Antichrist. But you know what? You can affirm all of these things with your head, but you can still be lost in your sin. You've got to embrace it with the heart. Just this past week, in an attempt to try to finish this book, I'm dealing with Charles Spurgeon. I found out something about Spurgeon I never knew. I knew that he was converted to Methodist Chapel at age 15. But I did not know this about Spurgeon. His father was an independent minister. His grandfather was an independent minister. His parents were destitute, and he grew up until age 7 with his grandparents. Then moved back home, and his mother faithfully taught him the Scriptures. He studied the Puritans. He knew all the Puritan works. At age 10, people would come home and have family devotions. And Spurgeon, young Charles, would read the Scripture. And a visiting minister was so impressed with him reading the Scriptures, laid his hand on him and he says, God is going to use this boy one day to reach thousands of people. That's age 10. But at age 15, he wanders on a snowy day into a primitive Methodist chapel, which I told you about my great-great-grandfather was primitive Methodist. And he hears a simple sermon by a lady preacher whom Spurgeon says was, was ignorant. He says he didn't know the Scriptures hardly. But he preached on John 3.16, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And, and Spurgeon says, I had heard that, that sermon before for years. But it was not until that day did I hear Jesus preach to my heart. And it was that day he actually heard Jesus and trusted in Christ. This is the boy that studied all the Puritans. 
when he went home, his mother said, something's happened to you today, hasn't it, Charles? She knew something had happened to him. So what I'm telling you is, here is a young boy who would have had impressed you with his intellectual grasp of the Bible, but by his own confession says, I knew nothing of the grace of God until I was age 15 and heard Jesus preach that day. I heard my father and my grandfather preach that, but it wasn't until that day that the Lord opened his heart. You know, the scripture says that we must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said that's the first and the greatest of all the commandments. And he said the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But then we see that the scripture can be summarized in as Galatians 5 summarizes the scripture. It says the whole law can be summarized in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's based on the fact of one scripture and other scriptures that, we, uh, that I've mentioned before. 1 John 4 talks about how can we say that we love God if we don't love man whom we've seen. If I can't love a man whom I've seen, how can I love God whom I haven't seen? So therefore, by loving my fellow man, I am loving God. And so love, what we need to understand is love is a godly action that goes beyond just a mere outward compliance. It's from the heart. See, I can know things cognitively, intellectually, but it still has it grasped my heart. There's a difference. And all these men can have said, and great preachers of the Word of God have mentioned, there were times when they would have impressed people with their outward compliance to certain things, but then later said, I never knew Jesus. I never trusted Him with all my heart. You know who that was true of? John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, of whom we sing many of his hymns. All of them were part of the Oxford Holy Club, and every single one of them says, when we were all part of the Holy Club at Oxford, we all were seeking righteousness in the flesh. And one by one, God saves every one of them. You know that great hymn that we sing called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? That's, that's uh, the hymn, a great hymn by Charles Wesley. When God saved Charles Wesley, the first thing off of his pen was the, uh, that great hymn, the day of his conversion. That was the hymn of the day of his conversion. And so all these men knew all these things in the head, but they didn't know it in the heart. And you see, love is, starts with an attitude that shows itself in godly behavior. It starts from the heart, and then it manifests itself in godly fruit. Now, in our, in our text in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, uh, what we have seen, what are we seen thus far about love? Well, it says love is patient. It's long-suffering. And we saw that 
all of these traits that we see here that we're commanded to exemplify are found in God himself. All of them. Why are we to be patient? Because God is patient. Why are we to be kind? Because God is kind. Why are we... Uh, we're not to be jealous in the sense Now we talked about a holy jealousy that God has, that he is the true God and expects no rivals to himself. So, But the, and a sinful jealousy and envy, God's not envious in that sense. God is not arrogant. He's not prideful. And so we see that we, when, when it says love is patient, we need to exercise long-suffering. Uh, we're patient with people. We show kindness to others because God shows kindness. Uh, we're not envious of what others have. We're not covetous of what others may possess. We accept where God has given us. Doesn't mean in our station in life. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to improve our state in life. But we've got to accept where God has us in His sovereignty. And until God increases our outward estate. We have to be satisfied with what he's given to us. We've got to learn to be content. Paul says, I've learned to be content in things that I have, in, in prosperity, and in, in want. He says, but I've learned to be content in all states. And so we see here, <clears throat> verse 5 gives us another aspect of love. That's what we're going to deal with today. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into an account a wrong suffered. <clears throat> to learn about this, you know, when it says that love is all of these attributes, we, we learn something about what that love is by seeing how a word is used. Well, this word for unbecoming in the New American Standard is only used twice in the New Testament. One here, and then one other place in 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about a father is not to act in an unbecoming way towards his virgin daughter. And in the context there, it means he needs to be sensitive about a daughter who wants to be married and not grant her a wish to get married someday. You say, well, then, what does it mean to be unbecoming then? Well, we can nonetheless learn about a lot about love. Uh, is does not act unbecomingly, meaning that it does not bring shame to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, <clears throat> an unbecoming behavior is this. It is any behavior that is improper to Christian holiness. Anything inconsistent to Christian holiness would be unbecoming behavior. And what would be unbecoming behavior? Something out of the mouth, such as uh, vile language, profane language, uh, verbal abuse of other people would be unbecoming. Uh, disrespect, that's unbecoming behavior. That would apply here. Uh, drunkenness. Any kind of thing like that. Uh, sexual immorality would all constitute. That's not to say that's all of them, but all of these things would constitute unbecoming behavior, which love is not. Love does not act unbecomingly. 
it, it doesn't express itself in a way that's inconsistent with Christian holiness, sanctification. Here's what we must realize. The Christian, the genuine Christian, not just one who professes Christ, what does the Scripture say about them? They are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, right? That is the Christian. As Acts 20, verse 28 says, that Jesus has purchased his elect with his own blood. All those whom God is going to save, in human history. Jesus has died for them. Now, he didn't die for the non-elect. He didn't die for the reprobate. There is no one in hell for whom Jesus died. The reason people are in hell demonstrates they're not people who died for because if he died for them, guess what? They'd be redeemed, right? My redemption is not based upon me as such. It's upon the work of Christ given to me. The, the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus is not dependent upon me. When Jesus saves, he saves. Now, yes, I've got to believe in Jesus. But my belief, mind you, is not what saves me. It is the instrument by which God saves me. But what saves me? Jesus and his righteousness saves me. All that faith is is the reaching out to appropriate what Jesus. That's why, when I quoted to you earlier about Spurgeon, when he was saved at age 15, when that, as he said, that very untaught man uh, effectively preached from John 3.16, if I be lifted up, referring to the serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up, remember when that Israel was bitten by the poisonous snakes? And they begged Moses, help us here, we're dying by the thousands. So Moses pled with God, and God says, then make a brazen serpent, raise it up, and tell everybody, just look on the serpent, and anybody who looks on the serpent, they'll be healed, just like that. All you had to do, you didn't have to run around the camp seven times, go dunk yourself in the river, you didn't have to do that, you didn't, you didn't have to do this, 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 and this. All you had to do is look in faith to Jesus, and you'd be saved. Now, Jesus mentioned that in John 3, and the greatest, the most popular verse in the Bible is on the tail of that verse. Jesus says, I will be lifted up, and I'll draw men to myself. For God, I mean, I'm the Savior of the world. So we see here that Jesus, the reason that we are not to act unbecomingly is because we belong to Jesus. Turn with me, turn back, in fact, to 1 Corinthians 6 and look at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. You see, the Christian has been bought with a price. And the Bible says the price is the blood of Christ. You're not your own. Now, let that sink in for a moment. We are not our own. We, don't, we were not in the masters of our own destiny. 
we're not the heads of, as it were, of, of all our decisions, as we're the masters of it. No, the Christian belongs to Jesus. He purchased us. Now, a person says, well, I, I think those demands are too great. I just think it's too demanding. Remember, Jesus says, unless you accept me as Lord, unless you hate your father and mother and your brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. It says in Luke 14, as a result of that comment, many people left Jesus. It's just too demanding, really, too demanding. Jesus is Lord. Remember in Romans 10:13, it says we've got to confess Jesus is Lord. I have to receive him in my life as Lord, meaning he calls all the shots. If he's my Lord, I'm, I'm the slave, right? He's the master, and the slave has to obey the master. I don't belong to myself. He purchased me with his blood. Now, if we think that's a terrible thing, we need to think twice. It's a wonderful thing to be purchased by Christ, to be redeemed by Jesus, to belong to him. That means we get to be with him forever in glory. But we're not our own. So we have to remind ourselves every day, as a Christian, I belong to someone else. I belong to Jesus. Therefore, I need to be sensitive of how I live because I belong to Jesus. Now, Jesus, as I already mentioned, said the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, if I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength, I would never want to do anything that would embarrass Jesus, right? I would never want to do anything like that. To embarrass the one who has purchased me and saved me? Why would I want to embarrass him? By our profession of faith, we have tied ourselves with Jesus. And we, when we act unbecomingly, we embarrass our Lord, we shame his name, and we bring dishonor to our master. Now, foolishness in the scripture is... Ungodly behavior in its various aspects. That's what foolishness is. You read the Proverbs, you learn everything about the fool. And listen to what the Proverbs says. I'm just going to mention a couple of Proverbs to you. Like Proverbs 17.25 says, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Now why is there this parental grief and shame that a father and a mother experiences when they have a foolish son or daughter. Well, your child is part of you, aren't they? You brought them into life. They are a part of you. They're in your image in some respect on the lower realm. And therefore, the behavior of children reflect on us as parents. And how they, and it, can, it reflects in how we may have raised the children. Not always, but it can and does. And therefore, the scripture says, when a child is foolish, it brings great shame to a father and a mother. See, that should break every child's heart. 
If a mother were to, to say, of all that I went through, you know, and a woman goes through the brink of death to deliver a child. There are many women in elderly that die in childbirth. It's no minor thing to give birth to a child. And there's a maternal relationship with a mother to a child that's there naturally. So why? So imagine when a mother says, my child has brought me grief, it should just break the heart of a child. Now, if this is true, if a foolish son brings shame to parents, let's elevate this on a, on a plane that makes that pale in, in, in comparison. Magnify that infinitely when an action that's unbecoming reflects upon God himself. Now, let's face it. People make judgments of God on the basis of what they see others do who profess in Jesus. Now, granted, the godliest of Christians are still sinners and can fall. We understand that. But the love of God, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you consciously are wanting or should be thinking, I should be very circumspect of how I live my life so as not to bring shame to my Lord. Because I've, I've professed to belong to him. So I've always said this, that ministers of the gospel, ruling elders of the gospel, ought to be grieved to no end if they do something unbecoming so as to embarrass the faith. It's a terrible, terrible thing when someone in spiritual leadership falls and acts in an unbecoming way and thereby embarrasses the faith. And then by embarrassing the faith, they give fodder to the unbeliever who says, See? Your faith is nothing. You Christians, even your preachers are corrupt. And you want to try to convert me? See the damage that's done? I think I've mentioned this to you before. The first sobering reality in my life in that regard was when I was a seminary student. And we had a preacher come in that, get, that preached on the doctrine of, of uh, reconciliation. No, adoption. And it's, it was a very uh, a, a topic that virtually's not dealt with. And it was a, over a period of several days, and all the students were blessed by this thing. Months later, we find out that this preacher left his wife and children and ran off with his church secretary. When the news reached seminary, you might as well have dropped a bomb on the seminary. For an entire day, the, the, the countenance of virtually every student was depressed. We just couldn't believe it. Are you serious? This man who came in and preached these sermons did this? Really? That was my first taste of the impact of someone like that falling. Can you imagine the damage done to the name of Christ by that? 
I've always said this, and it's, I, I've even given a charge to, to other preachers and presbyteries. I say to ministers, uh, future ministers, I say, look, we, everybody knows you're not perfect because you're a sinner saved by grace. But there is a standard. There is a way of life. And you're, all, you're, you're viewed before people. And before you ever drag the name of Jesus through the mud by doing something disgraceful, you ought, to, you ought to desire to be dead. You ought to be desired to be dead before you drag Jesus' name through the miry pit of sin. Because sometimes people just don't get over it. And they will always, some will use that as a reason why they will never become a Christian. Not that that is their excuse, but we should never give people an excuse for that. And so every professing Christian, not just ministers of the gospel, but every professing Christian is a witness bearer of Christ. If you say you're a Christian, you are a witness bearer to some other person. Automatically. Unbecoming behavior is inconsistent with sanctification. And endeavor with all your strength to never give cause for an unbeliever to ever mock the name of Jesus. That's the last thing you should ever want. Why? You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus. You've been redeemed. Why would you want to disgrace the one who has saved you forever? Why would you even think about it? See, that's the problem. People don't think that way. You see, love doesn't act unbecomingly. Love thinks before it acts. Before it does something stupid like that, it thinks about it, the impact. Now, to show you how certain uh, things or our beliefs and our relationships affect people's view of Jesus, turn with me to John 17. John 17, let's start at verse 17 through verse 21. Now, this is Jesus's. Uh, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and crucifixion. So this was what was on Jesus' heart. He says, he's praying for his disciples. He says, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I have always, I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe thou didst send me. You know what was on the heart of Jesus? On before his crucifixion, the unity of the body of the Christ, the visible church, that was on the Lord's heart. And he says, to the degree that you, my visible church, shows the unity of the faith, is the proportion to which people will know that I am the Christ, that thou didst send me. This is why I've always said, Church splits, church schisms, 
that reach the newspapers in the community are tragedies of immense proportion. They really are. Because Jesus says, people, when, when, let's put it on the other side, when we are acting the way we ought to, loving one another, experiencing the oneness of Christ, loving each other, as the scripture says, that is a powerful draw of people to the church. Because it's different. That's not how the world is. That is not how the world acts. And therefore, they should see the church as this glorious haven that they can go to and not be necessarily gossiped about, run down with uh, all sorts of things. The church is a special haven for them. That's the way it ought to be. So that by the godliness of Christians, people should be drawn to the faith. That's what Jesus says, that the world may believe thou didst send me. By your unity, the world will believe I am the Christ. That there is something different about you Christians. You see, if, if we're not different than the world, what is there to attract people to us? Seriously. If we're not different, what's the value? The love of Christ does not, the love, love itself does not act unbecomingly. You know, and acting unbecomingly just this past week. I mentioned this. <clears throat> More disturbing news of the state of the visible church. I've told you in the past, there was a, uh, a man in uh, the PCA. I don't mind mentioning the name of the nomination because it's worthy of mentioning. A presbytery put a man where the General Assembly said, you need to try this man for denying Certain doctrines. It's all about the federal vision. You need, the, the General Assembly Commission says you need to try this man. Well, they, they, when you have a trial, you have a prosecutor that gathers the evidence and then convicts the man. It's basically a heresy trial on a presbytery level. This past year, the presbytery exonerated this man. Even though the Standing Commission said there's a reason to presume guilt, people all over the country saying the man is guilty, he's guilty by the fact of what we read in his articles, what he writes about. And yet, this presbytery exonerated him. But here's the one that, that, that got me last week. The prosecutor, the man who used to find the man guilty, has just renounced the faith has said publicly, I no longer believe in sola scriptura or sola fide, meaning justification by faith. The prosecutor has apostatized the robe or something like it. And we're sitting there saying, are you serious? The prosecutor has renounced the faith? This is just one of the many problems. You talk about unbecoming behavior. Some said, that, well, at least he acknowledged and was... He did what he's required to. He announced to Presbyterian. He says, at least I can't continue because I don't believe it anymore. At least he's better than the one who supposedly was trying. He wants to stay in, but they both believe the same thing. I mean, this is the state we're in, brethren. This, this is what we're facing today. We're in great need today. 
any kind of unbecoming behavior, and that's unbecoming behavior. So once called upon the name of Jesus and then to renounce it, we're talking about a minister of the gospel. Renounce the faith. Just remember, you and I belong to Jesus, and any of our actions reflect upon Jesus. And the next time some crude thing comes out of your mouth, you need to think, how does that affect my Lord, my Master? The next time, as a child, you're disrespectful to a parent, you loving God? You loving God? I don't think so. If you're disrespectful, that's unbecoming behavior. Well, let's talk about another face of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It says in our text, it is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. In other words, love doesn't blow up. Love shows self-control. Love is not short-tempered. I couldn't say it any better than what the commentator, the great commentator Matthew Henry says about this. Here's what he says about this text. Matthew Henry says, charity, that is love, love thinks no evil, it cherishes no malice, nor gives way to revenge, it is not soon nor long angry, it is never mischievous, nor inclined to revenge, it does not suspect evil of others. It does not reason out evil, charge guilt upon them by inference and innuendo, when nothing of the sort appears open. That's what he says about it. It's right on. You know, when the scripture says that love is not provoked, it's saying that love exercises great self-control. Because people can do things that just get under our skin, don't they? And that's just the way it is. But love exercises great self-control. It's very much closely associated with patience there. And think about it. When a person is given to anger, it's because, who are they thinking about? They're thinking about themselves. Really, when they're given to anger. We're talking about a simple anger. We're not talking about a righteous anger like Jesus had about those who defiled his temple. We're talking about a sinful anger here. And the angry person is a self-centered person. That's the reality. That's why it's not, it's uh, interesting why it says on this text about love, it does not seek its own, is not provoked. Notice the, the close proximity of these things. It doesn't seek its own. The angry person is really, they have personally been offended some way. And therefore, you see, there's a great correlation between being provoked or not being provoked and exercising patience. Love is patient. If we're patient with people and their shortcomings, if we are patient with people and their shortcomings, then we are less inclined to blow up at them. Now, here's how sinful anger, by the way, manifests itself. 
two ways primarily. One, by ventilating anger, blowing up. That's one way. But there's another way, too, by internalization or clamming up. Some people clam up. Both are very destructive. And we're going to see how. When we blow up, we are venting our disappointment towards others, aren't we? Somehow, some way, they've disappointed us. Now, sometimes you may say, well, you just don't know what they did. They may have done something really stupid. You know, sometimes children can do something stupid. Sometimes parents can do something really stupid. And the spouse says, are you serious? You did that? You, uh, what, what were you thinking? Well, they weren't really. That's the problem. But, you know, even if they have done something sinful, is that how, does the Bible say that you should blow up at them? No. It says, what does Scripture say? It says, gently. Those of you who are spiritual, gently go to them and discuss their sins. You know, when we, uh, when we blow up at people, we show that uh, we're showing them that we are disappointed in their behavior towards us in a way. Are you aware that there are, for real, certain uh, psychiatric books and therapies that justify that? I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read to you just a, a, a session I got a lot of this information from Jay Adams' book on Euphatic Counseling, and he documents in there a woman that came to him and said, I was part of a therapy session by a psychiatrist. Here's what the person said. On one such session with the psychiatrist, uh, pillows from sofas were used as props to be beaten, struck, pounded, thrashed and abused by people who imagined to be whatever they were mad at. So the psychiatrist says, you just need to get it out, and here's a pillow you can just beat the daylights out of. One such woman was seen lying on a mattress, kicking and shrieking in rage. Later, the woman told her son, I was working out some angry feelings I had about your grandmother. This is a psychiatric session now. Now, the perspective on this is, what are they advocating? They're advocating ritual murders. And during these sessions, the psychiatrist had to stop the people and remind them, this is only a pillow, remember. They had to remind them, this is only a pillow. Well, they were told to just let it all hang out. And get all your bidding anger out against them, whoever it is. I'm telling you, those kinds of psychiatric sessions are wicked. They're wicked. They are solving nothing but what? Encouraging people of rebellion in the heart. To have anger in the heart. To strike when you're angry. That's what they're saying. See, their justification is, at least you're beating a pillow and a, and a couch, not the person. So somehow... That's to prevent you from actually hitting that person? I don't think so, right? I don't think so. 
One of the uh, writers of the book that justifies this by the name of Dengrove says, quote, They learn freedom is carried over to real life. The patient is made happier and more capable by this character change. <laughs> character change? There's no character change. You're just told to get it out on, on something inanimate. There's no character change here. Compare that. Worldly counsel. Compare that with what the scripture says. Let me just read you a couple verses. Proverbs 29.11 A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Now talk about those who say, some people say, I, I just can't control my temper. Really? Can't control your temper. All right, let's test that for a moment. Husband and wife, let's say you're just getting at it. You know, there's something you just, you're fighting. And it may be getting intense. And you may be yelling at one another. And the phone rings. Do you answer the phone? What do you want? Is that how you answer the phone? Now, you could be fighting with your wife, and you answer the phone, Hey, Fred, how you doing? Does that ever happen to you? Don't tell me you can't control your temper. Because when someone else walks in, you, all of a sudden you've controlled your temper. See, it can be controlled. How different is the face of love? It doesn't take into an account a wrong suffered, it says here. You know, consider this. <clears throat> Love doesn't lose its temper. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. I love that passage. It is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. Now, why is that? Love does not take into an account a wrong suffering. It doesn't keep a tally. Now, how different is the face of love than the person who says, Now, look out. You better watch out. Don't you provoke me. You know, when you do this, you push my button. Don't provoke me. Now, there we're not to go out of our ways if we know people are prone in error. We don't go out of our ways to provoke them. I mean, we're told fathers are not to exasperate, provoke the children. But the attitude of, but watch out, don't provoke me, that's, that's not love speaking. See, I should not be easily provoked. That's the point. Love is not easily provoked. It's not self-centered. It's not seeking its own. It's kind. It's patient. It, it, it overlooks transgressions. So I shouldn't be easily provoked. Love doesn't put others on warning where they have to watch out. Watch out. You know, you, you say this to mom, you're going to set her off. Or don't do this, say this about dad, you're going to get them going. It shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't, I mean, children shouldn't have the attitude of that kind of fear of, of something that they said, all of a sudden it just spurs the, the father or the mother to shoot off. 
if people around me are fearful of what they can say or not to say that may provoke me, then I have a problem. Then I have a problem. A spiritual problem that needs to be dealt with. I mean, people shouldn't have to be walking as they're saying those on pins and needles around me for fear of what I may say something to get me going. It shouldn't be that way. You know, Proverbs 29:22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. You know, the idea of sanctioning, like we said earlier, this ventilation of anger is diametrically opposed to the biblical admonitions we have seen in Scripture. Now, there's another side to this uh, anger <clears throat> of not being provoked or, or being easily provoked, that is. The other side is the internalization of it. The clamming up. See, a person may blow up or they just may clam up. And they're not saying anything to you, but they're seething inside with resentment and bitterness. That's equally destructive. Equally destructive. And all of this, now while the blowing up or the clamming up may not ventilate certain evils, this internalization of this anger breeds oftentimes self-pity bitterness, and resentment. You know, there's great biblical reason, uh, admonition in, in Ephesians 4.27 that says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's not a marriage counselor that doesn't have that as a main verse to deal with married couples when they get angry with each other. That's the worst thing. You, you, you've got to learn to deal with the sin that day. Because if you don't deal with it, it doesn't help. You know, it doesn't help. Now, I'll just say this to a husband and wife or somebody says, Oh, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, nothing's wrong. No, I don't want to talk about it. Well, what, what does that do? The not wanting to talk about it is not dealing with the issue, and it only aggravates the problem. And it causes tension and separation in a couple. Or it can be with children. It can manifest whatever way. You know, Jay Adams has said, the New Thetic Counselor, the, if we may say that the granddaddy of New Thetic Counseling, Jay Adams has said, 90% of all counseling issues involve sinful anger in some way, respect. But love doesn't seek its own. Love is not about self-rights. Love doesn't vent. Love doesn't seethe with bitterness over what someone has done to them. Now, this next one is even bigger, too. Love doesn't take into an account a wrong suffered. In other words... Love is quick to forgive. It's quick to forgive. You know, the disciples struggled with this, did they not? Jesus, how many times am I to forgive my brother? 
Seven times? Seventy times seven, Jesus said. In other words, there's no end to it. And you know what the response was? Lord, increase our faith. I mean, you're asking, you're asking too much, Jesus, in other words. But you see, love is quick to forgive. And what this means is that love doesn't keep a tally of the sins of others committed against us. Love doesn't bring the past up as a club to beat the other person over the head with. It doesn't do that. And you know why we shouldn't do that? We are to be reminded that's not how God treats us. That's not how God treats us. Turn with me. To Psalm 103, look at verses 10 through 12. Now, this is how God is dealing with his people and their sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for him, his days are like grass, the flower of the field, so he flourishes. He knows our frame, but he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. Turn with me to Psalm 130. Look at verses 3 and and four. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. If the Lord should mark, if he, in other words, if the Lord should keep a record, who would ever stand before God Almighty? Nobody. If God were to keep a record of our transgressions. So God has called us to live a life of grace to be shown towards other people. The same grace, by the way, which we have received from God himself. He has forgiven us far, far more than what we have ever done to him. I once was engaged in a counseling session with a couple that were in trouble. Their marriage was in trouble. The husband in years past had done something that was really wrong, but the wife had forgiven him. The wife has now had a complaint with him, but he had never he had not done anything to the point that she is of that such outrage with him at this point. I remember counseling with her, and she said, I, I said, you know, you said you forgave him of that for years. And now what she did, she brought it all back up to him. She was wanting, she was ready to divorce him. And she says, well, I just, I just can't get over it. And I remember looking at her, and I said this, I'm glad that my God doesn't deal with my sins like you. Because I said, 
I'm not excusing what your husband did to you years ago. I'm not excusing that at all. But I said, your attitude now is, I will not forgive him, though you said you forgave him. I said, the Lord doesn't deal with my sins that way. It is grievous that you cannot find forgiveness in your heart. Because he hadn't done anything worthy at that present time for her to say, I want to divorce him. I couldn't convince her through the counseling. The session couldn't convince her. She'll divorce her husband, and she'll have to be excommunicated from the church because of it. She couldn't bring herself to forgive as she professed as a Christian to have been forgiven by Christ. And I I brought up that passage. I said, let's talk about forgiveness. Because when she said, I will never, I can't forgive him, I said, then neither will Jesus forgive your sins if that's the way it's going to be. Luke 18. If that's the way it's going to be, then he won't forgive your sins. God has, he doesn't, God doesn't keep a tally against us. Some notebook. You see, keeping a list is a slap in the face to grace. You realize that? Keeping a book of wrongs that have been committed against us is a slap in the face of grace. It completely goes against what grace is all about. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve. But if, I, if I'm keeping a, an account of wrongs suffered, then I'm using it against the person. It will always be the ace in the hole, as they say. The trump card should never be. You know, list, list keepers are not forgivers. They become grudge keepers is what they become. And if not checked, the list becomes bitter. They will grow in bitterness. This is from Jay Adams as well. He recounts a story whereby there was a troubled couple that came for counseling. The wife's physician had sent the woman to him for counseling because she was experiencing an ulcer that he physiologically could not account for. He says, I think you need to go see a counselor. So she comes to see a counselor, a biblical counselor. And during the session, this wife slams down on the table a one-inch manuscript of eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper on the front and the back, a 13-year history of grievances against her husband. Now, you talk about keeping track of accounts of wrongs suffered 13 years. One inch thick. No wonder they're in trouble. The counselor could immediately see the wife's resentment against her husband, obviously. The many faults of her husband, and I'd say there weren't their faults of her husband, but the meticulous documentation that she had made over 13 years, and then the bitterness that was seething within her. 
Now, we may not, <laughs> I hope we don't keep that kind of notebook, but let's face it, if you're married, you've had your issues with your spouse, haven't you? How many times have you had a fight with your husband or wife, and, 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 and one of the spouses says, you always do this, and the other spouse says, always? You mean always do this? Yes. Never do you do this. You go, I know I did. I know I did something good here. I said, and or someone has done bad, and you say, well, when have I ever done that to you? And you realize, well, like last week, and they say, well, when? And you're sitting there thinking, last week, but you can't remember it exactly when. Have you ever been tempted to write it down for future efforts when they say, I don't remember when. Have you ever been tempted to do that? Yeah. And then I stop myself and say, what am I doing? I'm I'm getting ready to keep a tally of wrong suffered. Lord, forgive me. It should get to the point I should have amnesia. And so when they say that, yeah, it can be frustrating because you know you did something, but you can't specify exactly when, so you're not going to prove to your spouse you're not really that big a jerk after all, but but you can't prove it. But I shouldn't have to prove it. Don't keep a notebook of, of this for future reference to knock them over the head. You know, the great the great problem of keeping a record of wrongs suffered. Turn to first Peter four eight. First Peter four eight. Above all Keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent in your love for one another. And how does that fervent love express itself? It covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't deny that the sin was done. Notice, it's not denying that there was a sin. It's, just going to, it's, it's the point that it doesn't keep track of it. It's not going to use it as a club against them. Love is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrongs suffered. The great, <clears throat> therefore, love forgives the mistakes of others. Plain and simple. That's why Peter said, Jesus, if my brother comes and asks forgiveness, how many times am I going to forgive him? Am I supposed to forgive him every time they ask for forgiveness? Seventy times seven. That's tough. It really is tough when you're dealing with sin. But that's what the Scripture says. Is it hard? Of course it's hard. Whoever said that sanctification was easy? I don't remember anybody saying it was easy. Bible doesn't picture sanctification as easy. You know, I wish I could take a pill this morning and be sanctified at least for the whole day. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But it's not that way. It's not that way. It is tough. It, de- it, it demands prayer. It demands going to the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures and being convicted by the Word of God. 
You ever had a fight with someone? Then you go to the Word of God, and all of a sudden you realize, wow, forgot about that verse. Forgot about that one. If I'd known about that one, maybe I wouldn't have said something that stupid. Well, that's the point. That's why we should know the Word of God. It, 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 it constrains us. That's why the wise man, the Bible says, is a man of few words. Because it says, where there are many words, transgression abounds. <laughs> The more we talk, the more we're likely to get ourselves into trouble. Let's look at, as we close, look at Ephesians 4 with me. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. I actually need to bring up verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, You know how you don't grieve the Spirit? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. That's how you don't grieve the Spirit. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Again, let's keep this in perspective. The sins that people will commit against you are nothing of what the sins we commit before Almighty God. Nothing in comparison. Nothing in comparison. God will just stop us, you know, because of our sins, but He doesn't. He's merciful. He's patient. Is long-suffering. It separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so the next time, you know, in dealing with love and the frustration that you have with people, just think about God with reference to your sin, my sin. And that's why if, if God is a forgiving God, I need to be a forgiving person. I must not be easily provoked. I need to imitate my God in that respect. Love has a many multiple, multifaceted face. That's why your greatest prayers should be, Lord, make me a loving person, a really loving person. Because again, I mentioned this before. We talked about doctrines. One of the greatest doctrines is the doctrine of love. Yes, love is a doctrine. That's one of the doctrines we ought to put to heart. It's one of the greatest of all, the doctrines of Scripture. Imagine what our families would be like, what our churches would be like, our society, if we only were to manifest what 1 Corinthians 13 says. The Holy Spirit can change you, but only He can change you. You can't do it in the flesh. You cannot do it in the flesh. You have to beg God to sanctify you. And you know what? You you need to believe that God will answer that prayer. Because God says He answers prayers that are consistent with His will. And if you're praying for, for God to make you a more loving person, you ought to believe that God is going to start working in your life. That may be painful, 
But expect God to start working in your life. But praise God, that's the kind of prayers we ought to have. You know, that's the kind of prayers that the apostle had for when he prayed for the sanctification of the church. May that be our prayer. Lord Jesus, be with us now and make us more loving people. Convict us of our sins and how we have failed to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul. And Lord, forgive us for not loving each other as we ought. Sanctify us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.